CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm Michael Shoulder, and our mission on this program and all across CNN this week is to get as much clarity as possible on the state of the U.S. economy, especially the number one issue, job creation, which is why our guest right now is CNN business correspondent Christine Romans, who knows how to take a complex issue and not rush it. Christine, welcome. Thank you. Two minutes ago, I heard you on the phone. You were talking to the dentist of your child. What was going on there? Well, just before we were doing this interview, the phone was ringing and I knew I had to grab it. My son had a cavity yesterday. The dentist was calling back to make sure everything went okay this morning when he was getting ready for school and I was just checking in with the dentist quickly. (laughs) And, 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 And listen to this. Yesterday afternoon, I tried to reach you. Your producer said, sorry, she's gone because she's got to be back at work at 3.30 in the morning. So you get to work at 3.30 in the morning. You're a mother of how many children? Three little boys. Okay. How can we possibly trust you to think clearly about the economy (laughs) when you have three children and you get to work at 3.30 in the morning? Tell us. Because I am organized. I leave home at home and work at work, and I do as well as I can both times and try not to let one mess up the other. See, that should be your next book, (laughs) How to Compartmentalize Parenting and Work. That would be a good book. Uh, Working women are too busy to buy that book and read it. (laughs) They're living it. We will have to inject it in people. Well, listen, you have really been our chief correspondent this week on our issue series, trying to clarify what a second Obama presidency would look like in terms of job creation versus a, a first Mitt Romney presidency. And we want to break it down. I want to run a little clip from the opening of the piece that we ran on CNN TV, clip number one. Here we go. Listen to this. Over 8% unemployment, 5 million without work for six months or longer, more than 8 million only working part-time. If there's one thing Mitt Romney and Barack Obama can agree on, the economy, and more specifically, the jobs crisis in America, is the issue of this race. Okay, so these numbers, they confuse me. 8% 8% unemployment, 5 million without work for more for six months or longer, more than 8 million only working part-time. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers are dazzling and they come at us every day. What numbers do you latch on to? Is there a, one number that we need to be paying the closest attention to? Well, there are so many numbers to look at, and I'll tell you why I like to take a slice of different uh, numbers, because the labor market is big and dynamic, and there are these different compartments. I I gave that 5 million number because it's so important. The people who've been out of work six months or longer, those people are at risk of falling out of the labor market permanently, of never getting back where they were in the American economy, and that is a tragedy. That number is is too big. The 8.1% unemployment number, there are a thousand ways to slice that number. But 8.1% unemployment in the world's most powerful economy, that, that's just a shame. And, and each of these numbers tells you that there are millions of people who are not a statistic, but someone who is sitting in their house with a family trying to figure out how they're going to make it better today than it was for their family a generation ago, and they're not sure they can. So I feel as though the numbers I gave there are the most important numbers, but when you look at when you just look at the scope of the jobs crisis, um, I think it's critical to continue to hammer just how big these numbers are so that we can start to get some folks in Washington to agree on how to try to fix it. You, in, in your reporting, have summarized Mitt Romney's philosophy, which is basically let the private sector create new jobs. President Obama, you say, agrees. 
but thinks the federal government must play a larger role by investing in programs that may pay off in the future. That's from your reporting. I want to play another clip from Mr. Romney. I have a plan to create 12 million new jobs. Romney advisors also claim their plans will add another 7 million jobs over the decade. Government doesn't create jobs. It's the private sector that creates jobs. So what's in this Romney plan? First, Romney wants to overhaul the tax code by cutting marginal tax rates 20% across the board. He argues that people will have more money in their pockets to buy things. In turn, more jobs will be created to meet the demand for those goods and services. Okay. So a lot of numbers there, but cut marginal tax rates by 20%. Mm -hmm. This uh, the, uh, candidate Romney says he is going to create 12 million new jobs. Is it possible for a president, through his actions, to create that many jobs? <laughs> Boy, isn't that the big question? You can say we will have that many jobs created under my presidency, but did you actually do it? Look, it, it has happened before. And uh, and I will tell you that economists and financial reporters, we argue about whether it's possible, feasible, likely, or unlikely. I say it's possible, but unlikely. Some say it's absolutely impossible. And, and, and Mark Sandy from Moody'sEconomy.com, he says it, it's going to happen anyway if it's President Obama or a President Romney, that, that you have got a, an economy that was so deep in the ditch that now as it's slowly starting to grow, there will be this momentum and you're going to see some good jobs creation. This is a different time right now. is a very different time. You're going to see some job creation, but I think whoever is the next president is going to see jobs created and will take credit for them, but these jobs are coming anyway. All right, so let's flip over to your reporting on President Obama. We're going to hear another little clip from one of your television pieces. Jobs must be our number one focus in 2010, and that's why I'm calling for a new jobs bill tonight. Well, that jobs bill never panned out, and neither did the $477 billion effort he promoted last year, both essentially blocked by Congress. Okay, so there, there you have a key difference, okay? But mm -hmm. as, as you've reported, uh, both candidates know that the private sector must take the lead in creating jobs. But back in 2010, this little soundbite we heard from President Obama, he wants to spend more government money helping create jobs. He proposed $477 billion to do what? For a very focused job package. There have been several different jobs bills that they have wanted to do, and a few of them have actually got, gone through. There's been tax cuts for small businesses, and that's meant to be a job spur, jobs creation. There's been some infrastructure bills, uh, some that have gone nowhere, but they just, you know, they just did this big uh, transportation infrastructure spending package that basically extends through 2014 some of the things that were already uh, baked in the cake. But he's come up against a lot of uh, resistance in Congress because you know, the president wants to use public money to create jobs in the private sector. The infrastructure Infrastructure thing. You hear a lot about infrastructure building. Remember, our interest rates are at record lows. America can borrow money cheaper than it ever could before. So there's this big push right now about why isn't America borrowing money to do the big spending that it needs to do to compete with the Chinas of the world who are spending money like crazy on their infrastructure to try to outcompete us? Why aren't we using this moment to be better in our investments? And the reason we aren't is because politically we've already got too much debt and no one wants to take on more debt, even even as investment into your own economy. And I know you've reported a lot on, on a number of private companies. Private companies have access to this very, very cheap interest rates as well. And are they taking advantage of them? Companies, mostly big companies, 
they are using the credit markets where they need to and they're not having any trouble and they can borrow money very cheaply but they're not investing they're sitting on trillions of dollars of cash because they're waiting to see what's going to happen and this is something that is really really difficult for me as a reporter when I talk to CEOs and I talk to people in business and I say you've got all this money why don't you pull the trigger on this expansion or a new R&D facility or trying out a new product or hiring for this new wing and they say you know what no we're not there yet that we're happier with the money in the bank than we are taking a risk in the American economy and that's the first time in my life reporting economic news that I've ever heard so many people say that were CEOs sitting on money in the past and no then- not like this not like this they were they were doing everything well a lot of companies were overextended as you know they'd spent their cash and they were borrowing money and they were going gangbusters toward the future and growing using debt you know a lot of companies were like a lot of households and they got burned they say they're scared about regulatory environment they're scared about taxes they're scared about the fiscal cliff the fiscal cliff is what they're really scared about now they say look if you've got a government that can't even tell me what my tax what taxes are going to look like in January so they are seeing the drought and they're saying I'm not planting another 20 acres until I see some rain. Listen, that is that is a, a, a sort of perspective transforming phrase, the fiscal cliff. Explain, <laughs> explain to me what a fiscal cliff is. It is the manifestation of congressional malpractice. We're waiting for Congress to fix something that is going to happen because Congress didn't do its job. It is the beginning of the year, massive, massive, tax increases and massive, massive spending cuts that hit at the same time. The Congressional Budget Office and many, many other economists who do not have a dog in any political fight, they say it will result in a recession in the first part of next year. It will improve our debt situation uh, because you will suddenly have our our deficit will go down because we won't be spending beyond our means so badly. But to do that, it's going to mean throwing out hundreds of thousands of people out of work and it's going to mean businesses closing and a a pretty sharp recession in the first part of the year. And, and remind us, did both parties agree to create the conditions for this fiscal cliff? They most certainly did. And why? Why? Because last year we got to a point where we were going to hit the debt ceiling. You'll recall there's only so much money legally America can borrow. And America borrows billions of dollars every day just to live our standard of living right now. So the way you see America today, we borrow money to live like this. If we didn't borrow as much as we do, our standard of living in our economy would be smaller. People would feel it. The middle class would feel it. We wouldn't, you know, our standard of living would go down. So to keep everything just the way it is, in the wake of the financial crisis. It takes massive borrowing just to keep this ship afloat. And uh, we found ourselves right at the top of the the limit from Congress that we could borrow. So Congress was going to have to pass a law to say, we will raise the debt limit. We can now legally borrow a little bit more. And the new uh, Republicans in Congress who won on austerity and fiscal, you know, fiscal responsibility and we're not going to do business like it's been done for so long, uh, those Republicans said we are not going to go along with just raising this thing. We're not, we're, we didn't come here to do the same, you know, dumb policies that got us in this mess before. And so we had a real showdown over that debt ceiling. And in the end, what happened, they put in this thing called the sequester, which means because they couldn't figure it out and decide on a budget, now, automatically, all these spending cuts and uh, tax increases go into place. It was sort of like we gave this ultimatum. We said, we're going to have this fiscal cliff unless you figure it out. And they didn't figure it out, so now we have the fiscal cliff. So both parties have contributed to the fiscal cliff. Now, at the same time, the United States is not an island. 
And clearly what happens overseas is going to impact the job creation front here. We'll have more on that in a few moments. I'm Michael Schulder. This is CNN Profiles, and we're speaking with CNN business correspondent Christine Romans. Christine, I must say this whole thing must be a shock for an Iowa girl. You, you are from Iowa, right? I am from Iowa. You're right, LeClaire, Iowa. LeClaire, Iowa. And, and tell me a little bit about how that has shaped your perspective. What did your father do for a living? My father was an engineer. Uh, so he And he traveled the world, actually, doing sensor, sensor technology and engineering. And he kind of uh, really came up and came through at a time when agriculture was changing quite quickly because of technology and global positioning systems and what they could do to get you know, more efficiency out of tractors in agriculture, a, a time when you saw a very traditional industry like agriculture really merge with technology and change the world, quite frankly. So it was exciting to watch that rise. So tell me, tell me a little bit more about the, uh, your upbringing, though, in Iowa and how it's aff- affected your set of lenses, because it, what did your grandparents do? My grandparents were farmers, and so I grew up, you know, the conversations around the kitchen table were the price of beans or the price of corn, and whether you could get a new truck this year, well, you could at 650 but you couldn't, you know, you couldn't at 6 and, uh, you know, and, and this was in the years before everyone had crop insurance as well, so it was much, it was a very risky, you know, farming is always a risky thing, but, um, you know, before the drought of 1988, not everyone had crop insurance, and now 90% of farmers do have crop insurance, so that was a time when, you know, if, if the market moved against you a little bit, I mean, that was the difference between sending your kid to college and not, or sending your wife to go get a job in town, and then she couldn't help, you know, run the farm and manage the farm. So all of these, all of these things were dinner table conversation. I won't say stresses about money. I will just say awareness about what's coming in, what's going out, and how as hard as you work, you might have to look, work a little bit harder just to stay steady. So, so that was a very uncertain life, the life of a farming family. Let me ask you something. Growing up with those stories around the dinner table, do you think that increased your resilience or increased your anxiety? Oh, not anxiety at all. Because um, even though you know how what hard work it is, you don't work for anybody else. You're the boss. You're the one in the barn. You're the one who, you know, you... It, there's a freedom in that too, and there's also this amazing pride. I mean, my grandparents are very proud to be farmers. My grandfather was incredibly. I mean, he fought in World War II, uh, came back to this country, worked. Um, he even he went to uh, Greenland to work as a machinist on an Air Force facility there. He was away from his family for months at a time so he could save the money to buy the farm. You know, I mean, so this is a real you know first generation success story, and farming allowed farming really allowed that. And my grandparents did send children send their kids to college you know, by by working on the farm, and they were the first in their families to go to college. This is CNN Profiles, and I'm Michael Shoulder. We're speaking with CNN business reporter Christine Romans. Christine, as you remember that experience you just described, and now you're traveling miles and miles for your reporting, do you still see that spirit very much alive in America, or is it disappearing? I think 
market is alive. And that's one of the things about the American economy that is so interesting because in Washington, you have this pessimism. Among the big CEOs, you have this pessimism. And then you have among real people in this country, they are so disgusted. And I mean, this, the polls all show this. They're so disgusted with the status quo. They don't trust the banks. They they they, they don't trust their Congress because they, they look around and say, just fix it. Just fix it. You know, we got dealt a really bad hand, and we're not playing that hand very well. And why don't you people just fix it? And I think that's where the frustration comes from. I think we're gonna we're gonna really spawn a new generation of entrepreneurs and people who are starting their own businesses and working because they have to, contract workers and the like, and people who are just uh, out of necessity gonna have to figure it out on their own. You know, I was just thinking you came from a farming family. My father was actually a professional stand-up comic. And he was five foot five, so he used to joke about his height and having a height complex. And he said he went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist told him, Bobby, listen, you've got to think big, you've got to act big, you've got to do things in a big way. So my father joked, he said, I went out there, I bought a big house with big payments, and now I'm in big trouble because I just missed a big payment. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's that was a joke he did in the 1970s, it sounds relevant today. I mean, did we get ourselves into this mess? How responsible are we, the people? Well, we're absolutely responsible because isn't there that old saying in politics, you get the government you deserve? You know, look, we vote for people who have what I call short-termism. They think for four-year increments. And we have a rest of the world is rising and wants to have a middle class like ours. And we say, great, send us your cheap stuff. We'll buy it and make ourselves fill, fill our houses with stuff that, that's cheap. Um, and we don't notice or don't care about the manufacturing jobs that are being lost in the process as long as we can get a home equity line of credit and we think we feel richer with our credit cards, right? And then this all comes tumbling down and we say, how did how did our government fail fail us? You know, I mean, everyone was kind of on this sugar high for 20 years, and now we're trying to sort of sort it out. And there's there's just collateral damage everywhere. I mean, it really is a terrible. When I first started, I mean, it it makes me almost honestly choke up and cry over it because when I started reporting financial news in 1993, if you had ever told me I would have to, the words would come out of my mouth the way I've said 15 percent. Um, poverty, 46 million people on food stamps. In my country, in my country, are you kidding me? If I ever thought I'd have to say something like that, I would never have believed it. And and we all, we all are part of it, um, but we all have to be the solution. And I, I hear a lot of complaining and I'm blaming, but I don't see a lot of solutions. So we all have to be part of the solution, but again, we're not an island. Uh, a lot. Uh, we have China. And, you know, with China, it's sort of, you don't know whether to root for them or against them. What should we be rooting for with the Chinese economy? Yes. <laughs> yes, what? You root, yes, you root for them, and yes, you, you, you root against them. Look, you root for them because, um, you know, China, a, a crash in China would be devastating for us. I mean, we are so tied to China, and China is a big global growth engine right now. Europe's not growing. America is barely growing, and China is growing. So you don't want any kind of instability in China, economic instability in China. At the same time, the Chinese have these amazing, well-laid-out national strategies in every industry, in every kind of possible arena, political and economic. And in the, to the Chinese, there's no difference between economic, national security, and political. It's all the same thing. 
They have all these different strategies that they embark on very, very well. And uh, they've been doing that for some time now. And we don't have a national strategy vis-a-vis China. We have handovers of administrations, handovers of the Treasury Department, strategic economic dialogues that, that, that handle very short-term issues. But we're, we're, we have no national strategy with China. So we want China to succeed. But at the same time, we don't want to just be an importer of cheap things and outsource all of our manufacturing. I mean, I, I, I don't know, with, with 60% of American jobs created in the recovery, low-wage jobs, I don't know how you can argue that we don't need manufacturing in America anymore. And China knows it needs manufacturing and a lot of it because that's how you make people middle class. So how do you, how do you split that difference? How do you find the right balance between rooting for China's economic success and creating jobs in America? How can that happen simultaneously? Well, the issue, um, it can't be one or another. And, and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton always says that you can't be in the same rowboat, each rowing in different directions. Or she tries to say it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Uh, and it doesn't. But um, you have to have a national manufacturing strategy, and you needed it started about 20 years ago, quite frankly. So we are so behind. We're so behind on this right now. Um, you need a national manufacturing strategy, and you need to hold the Chinese to account when when there are shenanigans going on. And, and I'll tell you, the Obama administration says they've done more in the past three years to hold the Chinese to account than you know the two you know last administra- administration or anybody else. They've filed some complaints with the WTO and the like, but. You know, you have a currency manipulation issue that American presidents are afraid to say that the Chinese are a currency manipulator. You have so many issues. And in some cases, our silence on economic matters is what we trade for getting support from the Chinese on North Korea or something. You know, I mean, it's such a complicated and massive, massive, um, massive problem that when you look at American presidents who are so short-term focused, you wonder how in the world are we ever going to be able to how in the world are we ever going to be able to really have a coherent strategy about China uh, if we continue to behave and think this way? Now, I like to think in the optimistic Iowa girl part of me that there are people over at the State Department, at the Pentagon, and the Treasury who are the career diplomats and the career politicians who have the career ties to the Chinese who really do have a national strategy. I just like to hope that's true. Um, so stop, we'll stop, right, stop right there. You just said a phrase. The optimistic Iowa girl in me. So taking it back to these corporate leaders who are sitting on mounds of cash, do they not have that optimistic Iowa girl spirit? Is that the problem? They do. They're trying to protect their business, and they're trying to protect their current employees, and they're trying to protect their shareholders, and they don't know what's around the corner. So they are... You know, they are seeing the drought, and they're saying, I'm not planting another 20 acres until I see some rain. So what are they looking for exactly? Well, it's, the, it's, it's again, this confidence. They say that uh, they don't like health care reform. This is what they, they all tell me this. Uh, they say they don't like health care reform. They say that they don't like all the regulations. And when you kind of dig into the regulations, these are state regulations they're complaining about, but they kind of lump it all into Washington. They don't like regulations, uh, and they um, don't like the lack of clarity on the tax issue. You know, they'd like to see comprehensive tax reform. They'd like to know that the corporate tax is lower on paper than it is right now. They want to know what kind of deductions, if any, there will be. And uh, they just want some more clarity on all that kind of stuff. Plus, plus, to be honest... They're getting everything they can out of their workers for what the demand is that they're seeing right now, and they don't really need to add anybody else by necessity. As long as they're returning money to their shareholders and they don't have to add employees, they won't. So when demand comes back, that's the thing that's going to flip the switch. 
when corporate America starts to see more orders and corporate America starts to see uh, that business is is really humming and they need to add more workers to get that done, that's when you'll start to see some movement, I think. But but it's not a matter of just going to the mall, is it? I mean, we, we, we've got to want to buy some serious things here. Well, it's other countries. We want other countries to buy our stuff, too. When you've got Europe, the largest destination for American exports, you've got Europe, I don't know, half the economies in Europe are in recession. I mean, and, and I, some of them, it's a double-dip recession. It, and it's not a matter of you or me going to the mall. It's a matter of Europe going to the mall. And what is China buying from us? And, I mean, you, the New York Times had an amazing story two weeks ago about outside of Chinese factories, they're building warehouses to hold all the stuff that they can't sell. They're making solar panels with no customers because they've got this industrial machine that's built to churn stuff out, and they have piles and piles of stuff they can't sell because the global economy is slowing. That can't be good for anybody in America who's building something because there's going to be some really cheap stuff to, to unload from China eventually. You know what I mean? So these are all the things that corporate that, that the business people, large and small, are watching and very nervous about. So the shopping mall, we are living in a global shopping mall. We, we have to stop asking what are Americans buying, what's the world buying, what are they buying from us. And on that note, I have to say, and just a final question, you know, right across my desk uh, 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 yesterday came a, a preview of the, of the election in the Netherlands. And all across Europe, of course, they're debating, should we have more austerity in these tough times or less? Should we tighten our belts more? Or spend more, and there's there's a real conflict there, based oh, on there's... based on what you've seen. What is better for America and the world right now? To people people to, for people to go out and spend more, or tighten their belts. Well, for people to go out and spend more is a. I mean, I personally tell everyone let. <laughs> You have got to start living within your means. I mean, to take this to the very micro, I mean, people should be living 15% below their means. And, and I say that, and people look at me like I'm insane. But that's how you build civilizations, put away for the future, and use that savings to invest and grow. And that's how, that's how you go from being, that's how you become a civilization. And that's how families become prosperous. And that's how you grow wealth. And you have this conversation now around the world where we're looking for governments to spend. So in the U.S., we're talking about the government spending borrowed money, so giving us a bill to try to jumpstart the economy right now, um, or tighten the belt and start cutting down on our debt at the very same at the very same moment. Now we have something that's called the curse of the bond market going on, and here's why: because interest rates are so low that the world isn't telling us that we've got to start cutting our debt. Moody's is, and S&P, uh, the S&P is, but the bond market is telling us that, um, quite frankly, interest rates are really low because people still want to lend us money. So we're at a funny moment here. We are not Greece. We are not the Netherlands. We're not France. We're not Spain. We're not Italy. We will, we will become that if we don't you know, get our act together. But at this moment right now, uh, the liberals and the Krug Paul Krugmans of the world make a very, very strong case for spending money on infrastructure, spending money right now to create jobs so you can grow the economy on its own later. And that's something that the Tea Party and conservatives despise, and that's why we have gridlock. All right, so final question for this Iowa born and raised mom of three boys who gets into work at 3.30 in the morning. What are you looking for in the coming year, coming couple of years, uh, that's going to make you feel better about the prospects for your three sons? You're going to get a slow healing of the U.S. economy no matter who is president. 
you're going to get a slow, steady healing with maybe some hiccups and some pullbacks no matter who is president. You're going to start to see jobs created. And the longer we see jobs created, the more comfortable people will feel about taking a little bit of a risk. I think you're going to see the banks start to loose up a little bit and say, you know what, we, we can tiptoe out here. The foreclosures are slowing. Credit card defaults are now people down. People are getting a little. It's going to take time. Time heals all wounds. And Americans right now forget that. They want to blame and change and, you know, you know, I mean, time heals all wounds. What we went through was so horrible that history books are going to write this period a little differently than I think we're living it right now. Christine Romans, thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles. Hey, you're supposed to say you're welcome, Michael. You're welcome, Michael. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> CNN. Radio.